0: My name is Tom, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I want you to open your Bible to Galatians chapter 6, and I'm going to pray. Father, uh, there are moments in your word that stand above us and call us into flourishing with you, and we stand before your word today uh, at such a passage. We ask that you would make us the kind of community that represents you well and is faithful in following you in into this word help us to understand help us to personal personalize this and help us to be a witness in your world lord amen uh already i'm getting emotional i was i was becoming overwhelmed during the worship because every single song seemed to speak to this passage um it's so beautiful, but it, it starts off uh, with, with a problem. Uh, it, in the beginning, it says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, and it's like immediately, oh, this isn't the way the community of God is supposed to be, uh, but we all know this is the way the community of God is. If you remember last week, we went through the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And, and Paul ends on this beautiful high note of what it looks like when believers yield to the Lord and follow him. And they produce this fruit that is love and joy and peace and patience. And, like, all the things necessary for personal and relational flourishing can be found in, in the fruit of the Spirit. It's incredible. And then you walk out of church on Sunday and there's an argument on the way to to brunch or there's a problem with family or friends or even interpersonal conflict and we know that we live in a world that isn't the way that it's supposed to be it's certainly not the way we would like it and and Paul immediately recognizes this anticipates it and says this is what it looks like for a church to actually follow the Spirit in this world. Not in some ideal platonic nebulous thing that doesn't exist anywhere unless you don't spend any time with people. But in this world, this is what a local church looks like. Uh, I, I know that a lot of you have been around church for a while. Some of you were raised in the church. Some of you have been at Door of Hope since the beginning, and you've experienced the pain of seeing people leave. Uh, in fact, the the numbers are staggering. People are leaving the church in droves in America and in the West. And the number one reason uh, for people our age, roughly millennials, uh, is that that somebody disappointed us. Either somebody in our community group or somebody in leadership. Somebody hurt us, somebody did something in in the relationship that that broke trust, the number one reason. And and if you've spent any time talking to people that used to be a part of the community and are no longer a part of the community, I think this is what you usually find. Somebody says, I can follow Jesus, um, and my church is just a different kind of expression of what we find in the New Testament. I get together with people at the bar, and we talk about spiritual things. Uh, I read spiritual books. I'm, you know, practicing contemplative uh, methods for spirituality. I'm growing. It's a beautiful thing. And if you've done any digging and asked a few questions, uh, you'll find what that really means is that it's Jesus on my terms. I read the kind of books that I agree with. I follow the kind of pastors, if at all, that I like, that say things that aren't hard. I spend time with people who think like me. And, and basically, I, I live a life of community of choice that doesn't ever get in my way of being who I want to be. And that's pretty much the exact opposite of what Paul is describing here. Uh, my thesis uh, that I find in this passage, in Galatians 6, 1 through 10, is that the, the church, the local church, is the context and the means by which the Spirit produces fruit in Spirit-led people. I, I know that goes against everything our culture tells you, but where you're sitting right now with, with this community, the, these are the people, these are the relationships that the fruit of the Spirit, that becoming spiritual, is actually going to happen. This is, this is where it's going to happen, and these are the people that are going to be a part of the Spirit making it happen. It's very uncomfortable. Let's read about it. Uh, so in Galatians 6, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin... You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also might be tempted. Uh, the ESV translates those who are um, living by the Spirit or in the Spirit as spiritual, which I quite like uh, because it's like a trap. Um, yeah, It's like, oh, you're, you're a spiritual person, great. So if you're a spiritual person, then when you see somebody caught, in a sin, not only will you talk to them about it, but you will take on the responsibility of restoring them in the context of community and spiritual. Spiritual people, I'm talking about the you know, the caricature here, don't like that. I don't like that actually. Um, conflict is is not much fun. But here's here's what Paul is saying. He he's not saying if you're you know hanging out with one of your friends from church, and they start processing something and kind of veer into the gossip thing, he's not saying, oh, gossip, and then you like, go on with the relationship. Um, he's not saying like this is a one-off sin. Um, he's talking about a, a pattern of sin that somebody gets caught in, uh, and this has two meanings. There's, there's the caught red-handed kind of thing, of the original Greek, but then there's also this double entendre um, where it's like captivated or trapped. I think that captures the way sin works pretty well. Um, It's fairly easy for us to fall into a pattern of sin unawares and then to get caught up into it and continue to perpetuate it and, and eventually get to a point where we realize that this is a problem. This, Jesus doesn't want me to do this. But not really have a way out. And that's why we need the community. We need relationships that are close enough to see this. So they can speak into our lives. And, and we need people who care enough about us. That they'll actually risk the relationship by saying, Hey Tom, I've noticed that you talk poorly about these people. And I wonder what's going on. I experienced this about 10 years ago. Um, I had been kind of quasi-working for a company. They kept me around because I I didn't mess up too much, and I was really good at lying, to be honest. Um, I I was not a model worker. Uh, I, I stayed around because they let me go on tour whenever I wanted. And I could have a job when I came back three months later, and no harm, no foul. It was a warehouse job, no, no real high-stakes kind of stuff. But as I got into the church, a, a friend of mine named Chris um, started noticing the way I was talking about the people I worked with. Uh, I was disgruntled, frustrated. I, I actually started to develop this, like, spiritual pride kind of thing where I thought I was better than them. And Chris did what Paul commends to us. He said, um, hey, Tom, I noticed the way that you talk about Mike and Shelly and Brad and Jyla is, it's like pretty negative. What's, what's going on in those relationships? And then you just let me like spill my guts and ask really good questions he never said, hey, I think you've got the spiritual pride thing going on, and you're sinning. He, he never even mentioned the sin, but by listening to me and clarifying and giving me the opportunity to be heard and understood, he helped me to see the way that I was relating to these people that I spent like 60 to 70 hours a week with was unhealthy, was going to damage my relationship with them, was going to ultimately damage my witness with them, and it was going to damage me. He did it gently. A spirit of meekness. Uh, that's really hard to do, and, and Paul knows it. He says in, in verse 1 and into verse 2, or into verse 3, he gives a warning. He says, watch yourselves, Are you also maybe tempted... And in verse 3, he says, If anyone thinks they're something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. And Paul is anticipating that spirit-led people are going to need to enter into the kind of relationship that restores a sibling in the family of God pretty regularly. And there's two big dangers when you do that. There's the possibility that you compare themselves to them, and you're like, I am, I am so spiritual. I would never fall for that. Um, That that you would develop an overblown sense of pride, and and that kills relationship. I mean, who likes to be patronized? In the room, anybody? I I don't like to be patronized. I don't know if that was patronizing for me to ask if anybody likes to be patronizing. (laughs) Maybe it feels a little bit, sorry about that. Uh, It's awful. It's terrible when you know somebody is looking down on you because they know they could do better. That that just, that's crushing. In the comparison game, I mean, it's the easiest game to win and it's the easiest game to lose because there's always somebody worse than you. Always. Like, I don't know if there's like the worst person in the world. I kind of don't really think so. I think we've fooled ourselves into thinking that there's this hierarchy of, like, better and worse. But there's always somebody worse than you. And whatever, like, metric you want to use, it's always a personal transcendent moral absolute that you hold, but isn't necessarily, like, transcendent in the big T kind of way. So there's always somebody that you can look down on. But then there's always somebody that's better than you. There's always somebody that you can look up on and say, I could— I could never be like that. I could never do let, do that. Um, you know, pick the thing that you care the most about, and there's always somebody that you're looking up to, that you admire, and so this comparison game. Paul says, "Cut that out. That's not healthy." Says basically, have have a realistic self-assessment. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take, and and this is a weird sentence, then they can take pride in themselves alone. And certainly Paul can't be talking about, like, test your own actions and make sure things are good here so that you can, like, take pride in in how great you are. Later on, he says, I take take pride in nothing but the cross. He turns the whole thing on its head. I think uh, Barclay is right, who says that, um, the, the easiest reading of the Greek in context is that Paul is saying, yeah, have an accurate self-assessment, but then keep, keep your hubris to yourself. Uh, keep, keep your boasting to yourself. Uh, let that between, be between you and God. It's like a subversive command from Paul. Um, th- the key to this entire section is verse 2. It's carry one another's burdens. And I don't know if you know what it's like to carry a heavy burden alone. Um, But I kind of assume you do. Since we're not immune to suffering, all of us suffer. And to some extent, suffering is isolating. Um, It's a unique thing. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis says that everyone's suffering uh, cannot be shared because of the uniqueness of it. Um, but but bearing one another's burdens has a way of, without lightening the load, making that carrying easier. Um, personally, so... Uh, I I think I told you all last time I preached, I hate sharing personal stuff. I would much prefer to never, like, give you anything that really matters because I'm at heart an American who likes to isolate and, you know, has been burned, doesn't want to be vulnerable in relationships and all of that nonsense, and it's awful. But here's the deal. Um, Over the last seven years, my wife Crystal and I have been trying to have a family and haven't been able to. And initially, it just took a while to get pregnant. And then finally, we got pregnant and had an immediate miscarriage. And that was brutal, but the statistics, you know, it was like, oh, one in three end in miscarriage. And so this is like a common experience that people should just talk more about so we could bear one another's burdens, you know? That would be good, but, but it'll be okay. We'll get pregnant again. And, you know, everybody was very very encouraging. Oh, well, at least you know you can get pregnant. And then uh, a year or two later, you know, nothing, finally got pregnant again, immediate miscarriage. And it was just brutal. It ripped our hearts out. It was very trying. Um, And then we, we went through the medical process of trying to get some answers. And if you've been through that, then you know how brutal it is when doctors say, well, maybe this, maybe this, we don't know. We don't know why. But but we know it's probably just not going to happen for you guys. And um, so a year after this final diagnosis of, you guys are never going to have a family, and we're really sorry. Um, we had done a lot of processing, and and actually we're like, this is an amazing thing. God is giving us a gift that we didn't choose, but he's going to make something beautiful come out of this. And... And then, out of nowhere, we got pregnant, and it was like, this isn't supposed to happen. We actually we were better when we had like worked through this stuff, and and now the terror really sets in. And most of the pregnancies had ended in about six to eight weeks. Um, right around the time we found out, it was like, Anna, it's not going to work out. But this one stuck around a little bit longer, and it was harder. And then we began to, began to hope. Oh man, we began to hope, and uh, we got to twelve weeks, and then like that's that's like kind of the if you can make it over twelve weeks, you're gonna have a child, maybe. Um, and we lost the baby, and it was just crushing, uh, and it was a heavy burden. But there's a guy named John Abraham, who is amazing. Um, he's one of my closest friends, and he carried that burden with me. Um, he didn't do it by giving me good advice, by talking to me about how God was going to make this turn out okay, or, like, something good is going to come out of this, which, you know, I mean, it's true, but it's certainly not helpful. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is true. God can make good stuff come out of anything, including a dead guy, uh, like, coming back to life, like some good stuff, like all of this came out of that. So I'm sure God can make something good come out of it. But in the midst of suffering, like that's not what you want to hear. Um, Suffering to me feels like drowning. It feels like you sink deeper and deeper down into this like black pit. And you look up and all your friends are up above and you're isolated. And what I imagine... John did, and this is what I think, to me, this is how I make sense of this, is what sharing or carrying another's burden is, is diving down to where your friend or your family member, since we're family members, diving down into that black pit where they're at and not pulling them up because that's impossible, but just sitting in it with them, weeping with them. We weep with those who weep just asking questions when it's appropriate, but like sitting in the discomfort of suffering. And that's what John did for me. It was amazing. Um, I I think it changed our friendship in a really profound way. And through it, like not just me, but, but John also, we grew in our capacity to love other people, to sit in really hard things with other people and, and, and God did make good stuff come out of it in his own time. He produced fruit. And, and that's the kind of community that Paul is, is talking about. A community that looks at something that ought not to be and has the courage to say, Man, I notice this is going on. Talk to me about it. I'm going to sit here and we're just going to have a conversation. I don't need to have answers. I need to understand. And once we like both understand and you know I'm carrying your burden with you, I'm going to take it as my personal responsibility to walk through restoration with you. Don't you want to be a part of that kind of church? it would be pretty sweet. Um, I I think we are. I really do. Uh, And and if you're not experiencing that right now, Paul, Paul has a word for you. Uh, we're going to get to it. Let's keep on reading. Um, as part of the warning, he says, for each one should carry their own load. And we, we find this principle throughout Scripture. Um, you know, like uh, in, in Acts and Thessalonians, um, Paul talks about the necessity of, of being diligent, not being idle. Uh, he, he says, "The one who doesn't work shouldn't eat. Don't don't support somebody who refuses to carry their own load." Um, and, and then he goes on in verse six and gives us a picture of of the positive side of carrying one another's burdens. And I, I think he does this purposefully because it's contextual. Remember, Paul is speaking to a church that got hijacked by spiritually proud Judaizers who wanted to take away the freedom that uh, this church had found in Christ and replace it with the law. And, um, and they had set themselves up as the authorities. And the people that Paul had, had installed um, had a problem. And I think Paul's addressing that here as a way to talk about something broader. He says, "...nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor." And usually this verse is used as a way of saying, hey, people, pay your pastor. Um, which, you know, I think that's actually a pretty crummy reading of it. Because uh, if Paul wanted to say, people, pay, pay your pastor, he'd do what he did elsewhere and say, the, the ox is worth its wages, don't muzzle the ox while it treads the grain, he points back to Jesus. There are plenty of places in the New Testament and the Old Testament where it talks about the responsibility of a community to free up gifted people to do the deep study necessary to interpret, exegete, apply the Word of God. That's totally legit. But what Paul is saying here is there's a teacher, and he's going to share what he knows with the community, and the community is going to share what they have with the preacher. It's a mutual thing. It obliterates hierarchy. It's not "pay me what you owe." It's a, "I've got this thing to share with you, and it's beautiful." And somebody else is like, "I think that's valuable. I've got this thing to share with you." It's this mutual sharing. And so, in the first part, verses one through five, Paul's talking about the necessity of church communities bearing one another's burdens. And this little picture. He says, but it's not just burdens. We bear one another's blessings as well. We share. We have all things in common. And, and it's because we have all things in common that we're actually effective in our mission. And that's the next part. In verses 7 through 10, Paul talks about a shared mission that flows out of this fruitful, spirit-led community. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, or as it's the season, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers." we're not just an insular community that takes care of one another, but, but we're a part of God's plan for the world. Uh, the, this old guy um, named Barkley uh, from like the 30s is fantastic. He said, Christ has redeemed the world alone, but the world will not become redeemed without his redeemed people. Uh, it's a concept that people have picked up and developed, and I just like the way he says it. But, but God is determined to work in and through his people. Uh, there, there are a ton of stories coming out of the Muslim-majority world uh, where people that have had little to no contact with Christians are having these dreams and visions of Jesus. Um, I spend the first Friday of every month with a bunch of pastors at Western Seminary, uh, slowly eking my way through an education. Um, But it's awesome. It's totally awesome. And we were talking about this uh, yesterday, or two days ago, um, how a lot of these guys are hearing back from their missions organizations. They're starting to collect the data because they're able to. How many people in Muslim-majority countries are having these visions of Jesus, and there's two things that Jesus always says to these people. It's so rad. It's not, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and if you put your trust in me, I'll give you eternal life. Um, He doesn't preach the gospel to them, which would be pretty rad. I mean, wouldn't it be cool to get Jesus to preach the gospel to you? I have a a feeling he understands it better than most. Um, Like what Jesus does when he shows up in these dreams is he points these people to Christians that they already know. Maybe they don't know that they're Christians, but he says, you know, go talk to so-and-so. They'll tell you about me. Go to the person with the black book. They'll tell you about me. Jesus could totally preach the gospel. He could totally say, hey, here's everything you need to know. Here's everything you need to do. And like, you could be real spiritual real quick. It would, it would actually be like the American dream, right? That would be the American dream. Jesus came to the dream, like told me how to get saved. Now I'm just like a Christian by myself and I don't have to hassle with sinners or anybody. I'm the most spiritual person I know. But instead he says, go find my people. They'll tell you about me. Uh, see, we're part of God's mission, we're part of God's plan. In fact, the, the church is God's plan. Remember, that the thesis of this passage is that the church is the context and the means by which the Spirit produces fruit in his Spirit-led people. There, there's a principle here uh, that I think we all intuitively get. It says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Um, wisdom literature in the Old Testament is full of this. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and even Job. You get Eliphaz saying, as I have observed, uh, a man who sows trouble reaps destruction. And Eliphaz has got his own problems with spiritual pride, in my reading, anyway. But I think he's right. Uh, but my favorite is Hosea, and Hosea 8 He says of the people who are about to be judged by God that they've sowed the wind, and so they will reap the whirlwind. It's very poetic. It's pretty brutal, too. Uh, This is just a principle. Like, you put corn in the ground, and you take care of it, and corn pops up, right? Like, even if you don't garden, even if you're not a farmer, like, we all get that you reap what you sow. If you practice something... If you practice writing songs, Evan, like, you get better at it. Evan's really good at writing songs. If you don't practice, you're still going to be a sucky guitarist. Right? You know, anybody can play the guitar, but not very many people can play it well. Um, and then he goes in, and in verse 8, he says, Whoever sows to please their flesh, he's applying this. And this gets pretty trippy. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now, Paul is not saying we earn our salvation. If that's what that verse is about, then the whole first five chapters of the book are a farce. He might as well have just been like, nah, never mind. Uh, He's been trying to convince the Galatians for five chapters that salvation— is by grace. It's a gift. It's not something you earn. So what is he saying? If, if you do bad things, you're, you're going like to end up in, in hell, and if you do good things, God will love you? It, it just can't be that. I think Paul is picking up again on the wisdom literature that who you are and what you do is indicative of whose you are and who you will become. So if if my core identity is identified with Jesus, I'm going to do Jesus-y things. If my core identity is about myself, I don't care about anybody else. I'm going to do whatever I want. And yeah, I might do some good things as it suits me, as it's convenient, as it makes me feel good, or as I'm like, manipulated into doing it, but that's not who I am. Paul, Paul isn't saying this is how people get into God's good graces. He's saying this is indicative of the mission you're on. I, I used to be a really good gardener. I'm trying to make my way back. Uh, it's a fun thing to like putter around the yard and care for things that are growing and living uh, in between things. Um, I used to live in southwest Portland, and I had this vacant lot behind me. I turned it into a half-acre garden, and really, all I did was plant a bunch of seeds, water them, and when the fruit showed up, I harvested it, and I had this massive party for all of my bandmates and all of our fans. We had like 40 or 50 people over. There was so much food, and it was beautiful. All I did was plant seeds. And harvest the, you know, take care of them and harvest the fruit. Lately, uh, like the last, I don't know, Crystal might be able to tell me, I think like six years. Here's what I do. Right around January, February, I get really excited because all the seeds start showing up at the garden stores and the, you know, Whole Foods and whatnot. And I buy a ton of them. And we have this little tiny yard. I mean, it's hardly, you can like take two steps and you've reached the fence. There, there's no room, there's no sunshine. These seeds have no chance. But I get so excited, and I plant them all over the place in, like, random spots, like, I mean, it's, it's kind of a train wreck, and, and I, like, this year, this year, I was like, I'm gonna do it differently, so I bought those little, like, peat moss things that spring up like the, the old dinosaurs in the bathtub kind of thing, (laughs) put my seeds in there, and, you know, I was, like, very careful to take care of them, and and it's been, what, is it May already? So it's been like four months. I've been like nurturing these seeds. They've been in our way in our kitchen, like making it around from the table to the kitchen to the, you know, all over the house. And I've been like nurturing and babying them. Here's what's gonna happen. Because this is what's happened for the last six years. Um, uh, in, in two months two and a half months. It's going to be the end of the semester at at Western Seminary. So I'm going to be working, you know, 50 hours or so at Door of Hope, and then I'm going to be doing like 20 hours a week or so at Western to like write papers that are coherent, and I'm going to forget about my precious plants, and all of that work is going to go down the drain, like, I could have had really beautiful little cucumbers and delicious heirloom tomatoes and, like, the sugariest snap peas. But instead, I'm going to have these little, like, brown, withered, angry plants. they just say, you forgot about me! And, and Paul says, let's not become weary in doing good. Uh, here, here's what's going on your your identity who you identify with determines the kind of seed and where you're sowing but but like you got to persevere man because it's hard fruit is slow to ripen you know it's slow to even show up initially you're like is this even going to work out i mean i've had like a strawberry like flower sitting in the front yard for like 3 weeks When's it going to get pollinated and give me a green strawberry? Come on. But but it's going to be even longer until it turns red and it's ready to eat. So, so what's Paul saying? He's saying that where you sow, what you do, how you act is indicative of your identity, but your perseverance is tied to the success of that. He's not saying, like, you know, if you don't persevere in... Like, in this one thing, like, you're going to be rejected anyway. But he's talking about the harvest, the fruitfulness of your mission, our mission, the church's mission. And he's saying, like, it's hard because it takes a long time. But at the right time, at the right time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have an opportunity or as it is the season— Let us do good to all people, but especially those who belong to the family of believers. See, the way that we treat each other here, I mean, this, I think, makes an appearance every week. They'll know you are my followers by how you love each other, right? I mean, like, Jesus knows that this outside world is watching. Is the church any different than... You know, I don't know, the pizza parlor or the bar where there's a Ulysses, you know, support group for people that like to murder themselves on difficult literature. Like are those relationships any different than the, the relationships in the church? See, we need to persevere in sowing good things to one another and caring for one another's burdens and carrying the blessings in sharing life together, and in sharing that mission. And, and if, if you just try really hard, that's just a work of the flesh. But if you're spirit-led, this fruit will be produced. The the thing to me that is beautiful about this is Paul's outline. And... Um, See, the Spirit works powerfully through these sons and daughters of the Lord. Let me get that back. And he works powerfully through these siblings who restore people who are trapped in sin. And these same people, in humility before God, don't count themselves more valuable than those around, but in a spirit of humility do this. And they obediently and gently restore their siblings, and not only by helping others with their burdens, but carrying their own as well. And so that there is no hierarchy. Yeah, there are roles where God has gifted people with a gift to share, and he 's instituted roles where there 's a certain amount of authority, but this is different than the kind of hierarchy that the world knows it 's different than those who lord it over each other, that use their their position and their role to hurt others. This is one where love reigns. This is the kind of seed that we sow in our community and in the world. And at the right time, God will reap the harvest. I think this should sound familiar because God sent his son to restore a family, to restore siblings who were trapped in sin And he did it at the right time. He did it when we were enemies. He did it when we were opposed to him. He did it when we were dead in our trespasses. He did it when we were totally incapable of restoring ourselves. He carried not only our burden, but he carried his cross. He died for us. Are you guys like seeing the parallels of Paul's layout? He did it gently. Uh, he fulfills the Isaiah passage where it says he won't snuff out a smoldering wick or or break a bruised reed. He humbled himself and took on the form and function of a servant, and he was obedient to God to the point of death. He lived a self-sacrificial life, We're saved by his life, we're saved by his death, we're saved by his re- resurrection. He's adopted us and made us sons and daughters, and not, not just sons and daughters, but, but sons and daughters that have the full right of, of inheritance with the firstborn, so that we will sit on his throne with him, which should scandalize us, that God would say, you can sit on my throne. It's too good to be true. He's the seed that is sowed. We are his harvest. In John 12, 24. He's called us to pick up our cross and follow him, and we do it together. And it's through the church, it's through these interpersonal relationships that he's forming us into a community of the Spirit. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? It means to follow Jesus and to follow him in faith and hope with love for one another and for our world, confident that we will reap this harvest with him. If you don't know Jesus, this is who he is. He is gentle, and he says, come to me. If you're weary, the people that are weary are the people that are doing good, maybe you're doing good on your own terms, come to Jesus. I'll give you rest. His, his burden is light, and his yoke His kindness, or easy. This, this is the God that we identify with, and out of our identification with him, we sow. Let's pray.